Welcome back, everybody, to Polch, the Internet's hardest drinking, hardest talking, hardest shooting literary podcast. Rudeness, shootness, shoot it. Uh, yeah, it's six months since I've recorded. <laughs> I can't even talk now. Um, welcome back, everyone. It is so good to see all your smiling faces. Uh, I really miss doing the show. Um, we've tried two times, I think, record, and... Um, at least two. At least two times. The last time was, uh, was a technical issue. We tried to make this very episode three weeks ago. And yeah. um, the time before that, I, I don't remember what happened, but we have been trying. We've just been failing to uh, to record a, a show for you. So uh, hopefully we'll be able to do it this time. God knows we've wanted to podcast for all you people out there in radio land. But someone keeps someone keeps taking trips to London, you know, and it's delaying hey, us. And it's was, not me. That was one time. I had to look after my sick aunt, okay? That was a mission of mercy. Oh really? I didn't know that. I thought it was just a just a frivolous trip to the uh, to the the big city. It was mostly frivolous. I mostly did her shopping. <laughs> the listeners don't know I live in Chicago now, right? No, they don't. Yeah, so that's that's that can uh, fill up some time. Just run out the clock talking about that. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. You've, you've been there for a good couple of weeks now. How are you finding life in the Windy City? Over a month. It's fantastic. I really, really like it. Um, you can just, uh, you know, everything you could possibly want to do is uh, just a short walk away from my apartment, which is very different from living... Um, where I was previously, um, which was just not a large city. And, uh, you had to drive kind of to do basically anything. Um, when my car was out of commission, like I, I, um, I had to hitch a ride to the grocery store. Um, <laughs> like just, just buying food, um, was not something you could walk to unless you wanted to eat at, uh, at a gas station, which I often did. Um, so yeah, Chicago's lovely. I, I like Chicago quite a bit. Um, lots of, lots of fun people here. Uh, lots of, lots of things to do. Lots of, uh, that's a beautiful, beautiful city. It really is one of the nicer looking cities in the U S because it was, it was built up, um, kind of it's, it was a big industrial city, like a lot of the Midwest, um, like Cleveland or Detroit, but, but even earlier than that, it was, a um, shipping and, uh, industry, um, which is, you know, very much a pre-war uh, kind of thing. So there's there's a lot of um, Art Deco and um, Beaux Arts style um, buildings. Just just normal people live in. You know, kind of just scattered around. Like I, I live in. I I'll get specific. I don't care. Uh, I live in the Avondale neighborhood of Chicago, which is what like address a, exactly? What's street street number, building name, apartment um, number? <laughs> apartment number two, Chicago, Illinois six zero six one eight. You heard it here, listeners. <laughs> Come say hello. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's like it's mainly like a Polish and Latin American neighborhood. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's not, uh, it's definitely not a rough place by any means, but it's, you know, it's kind of like a, a lot of working families. Yeah. Um, Interesting but, combination, Polish and Latin American. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Polish is kind of the, sort of the first wave of uh, immigration 
um, you know, sort of throughout the late 19th, early 20th century. And then kind of um, more recently, you have Latin American kind of um, influence and, and people moving in from there. Um, but, you know, like I said, working families, you know, it's not it's not a really ritzy place, but just all the buildings are so beautiful. <laughs> yeah. And we have um, we have a enormous Polish cathedral um, that is uh, not far from where I live. Um, that is just absolutely beautiful. And you've been attending every Sunday morning, of course. I yeah, no, no, no. But I every so often I it'll be like late at night and I won't know what to do. So I'll just go walk over there and like gawk at it for a while. And it's very, very nice. And uh, just compared to like the Southwest or, um, you know, just random podunk towns where every building is like a, is like a, a plywood box. Uh, it's really, really, you don't, you don't realize how, uh, how much nicer it is to live in, in a city that's actually built with some attention to beauty and, and detail. It's very nice. The one thing I will say about Chicago is, is it's very, um, there's not a lot of green areas, um, at yes. least where I am, there's not a lot of green areas, you know, kind of the closest you get is these little city parks. You know, I, I do miss that about where I was living previously because it was very, very, um, you know, it's a small city and it was very easy to get out of it and just be in a, uh, in what looked like a postcard. So yeah. you'd miss that. But uh, you have Lake Michigan, which is nice. You have actual beaches on, on Lake Michigan. Not big beaches, but it's uh, calling it a lake is misleading. It's more of an inland sea. Yeah. It has, you know, it has waves. It has a tide. Very nice. Is it is it salt water or fresh? It's fresh water, yeah. The whole, the whole Great Lakes together, I think, are are an inland sea and one of the bigger ones in the world. I think the, the Caspian is bigger, but I want to say they're second or third as, as the world's largest inland sea. So pretty cool. Yeah. That could be totally wrong, but I said it anyway. <laughs> inland sea fans, uh, write in and correct Nick. if uh... You can send me mail now. Oh yeah, now me, you know his address. <laughs> write me a letter. Uh, how have you been in the last uh, long time? Uh, I had a good time in London for the most part uh, I took great advantage of the city's bookshops and I, I bought like three or four dozen books I only brought a small suitcase Ooh. so on the on the train home I had four books each in my jacket pockets and my camera case never mind my bags <laughs> so you're like a like a like a drug dealer with a trench coat full of uh, full of books basically yeah I mean, I've, 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 I had some great finds. Let me tell you. What did you get? What was, what was the uh, piece de resistance? Uh, the piece de resistance was probably uh, Samuel Beckett's book on Proust, because that oh, is cool. that is wildly out of print and it's not available anywhere online for less than like seventy pounds. Nice. I picked it up for six ninety nine from the publisher. That's not bad at all. That's not That's bad at all. Deals and values, my friend. The art of the deal. Just call me Joyce Trump. That's what we'll call you. Um, <laughs> let's see. What did I get? I uh, I was thrifting. Um, I was thrifting this weekend with a lovely young man, and I found a uh, vintage bit of perfume of uh, Guillaume Chalamar, which is uh, 
Guillaume really loves charging extremely high prices, but it, it's really cool. It was um, the first Oriental fragrance, really. It's widely considered that. Uh, and it was formulated in 1921. Oh, wow. Um, obviously, they've changed the, um, the recipe. They changed the recipe a little bit. Certain ingredients are banned. Certain ingredients get expensive, that kind of thing. But um, this one is from the early 90s. And uh, it smells amazing. It's it's so it's so lovely. It's so uh, complex and uh, interesting. It's just such a mysterious fragrance. I've been drenching myself with it, and I'm sure I'm going to run out of it soon. But <laughs> that's that's totally fine. Um, it's one of these things that certain scents are so old that they don't even smell old fashioned. They just smell like they're from uh, a different timeline. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, Shalimar is definitely, definitely that it's marketed to women, but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't smell like you're, um, oh, well, uh, cross-dressing in an olfactory <laughs> sense. It just smells like, uh, like nothing else. I mean, you, you can kind of, you can kind of, um, you know, I have a couple of Orientalists and, and, it, uh, you know, it's kind of the basis of, of that genre, really. I mean, you know, every, every Oriental kind of bases itself on, on Shalimar to an extent, but, uh, it definitely has a, a real uniqueness to it. it. I don't know. I think it's so cool to have something that smells like, uh, like 1921. It was, um, kind of a funny thing. It was like a flapper perfume at the time. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, it's a very conservative choice now, but at the, at the time it was like, um, you know, scandalous kind of, uh, are you, are you getting news. the impulse to wear your hair in a bob? And uh, I am I actually pearl necklaces. You, you can see the, you can see the, um, you are getting the beginnings uh, video of a bob. feed. I am. Yeah. I'm wearing my hair in a bob. Um, I'm, uh, you are doing the Charleston at all times as well. Which I, might, I'm might doing, pick up on the mic. I'm doing a Charleston very quietly. So it doesn't, it doesn't pick up um, soft shoe, soft shoe Charleston. And I'm refusing to be uh courted by uh, by the man my family's picked for me I'm instead <laughs> i'm instead going out and drinking absinthe listening to uh, listening to swing music in a time where it was actually cool to listen to swing music and it wasn't something embarrassing people in bow ties on the internet did i'm not listening to electro swing music. Yeah. <laughs> that would be a step too far um have you ever heard electro swing i, I have i have managed to go my entire life gracefully uh unbothered by it i have a close family member whom i love dearly and whose whose identity i'm going to protect <laughs> had a, a a brief period of time uh during which they were they were into electro swing and i, I had to how old catch. how old were they at this point is, they were is, 16 17 that's that's kind of okay so, and, and they've grown out of it since yeah yeah that's not so um, bad there are worse things, you know, when yeah. you're 16, 17, there are worse things you can do than listen to electro swing, but there are better things you can do <laughs> as well. So any teenagers out there, um, you know, play baseball or something. Don't get into electro swing. Just keep re-listening to Pulch at any point where you would be listening to electro swing. <laughs> when you feel the urge to listen to electro <laughs> swing, reach for your podcast listening app and, uh, Cue up a cue up at a classic episode of Pulch. Cue up us talking about uh, Vitold Gombrovitz or uh, Ursula Le Guin. All those episodes we recorded ten years ago. Yeah. Go ahead and put those on. Listen to me be wrong about the coronavirus. Um, <laughs> listen I mean, to Joyce be wrong about Chaz. Uh, there's, <laughs> there's some great hits in there. 
one day we'll get something right. And today might be that day because... I doubt it, personally. (laughs) (laughs) Because um, about a month ago, we read uh, Ficciones by Jorge Luis Borges. Um, We're going to try to do this as a two-parter because Ficciones is a short story collection. And uh, quite frankly, every story in the collection could easily be its own episode. Um, they're pretty, um, they're pretty cerebral. They certainly warrant, uh, a pretty, a pretty good discussion. I thought we did a good time. Uh, I thought we did a good job the first time around, but, uh, we'll see if we can do (laughs) do that again. Yeah. Yeah. That that episode last last two parter went so well, didn't it? Sexual persona. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, that ended because we were so annoyed with the book, and then we didn't really want to read another 350 pages of it. And, not, that, uh, not that you've read 350 pages of it in the first place. <laughs> no, I mean... I, read, I, I re-listened to the episode today while cleaning. You, you openly admit to reading like 100 pages. And I'm glad I did. I think it was 100 too many. Um, I should have just read the Wikipedia summary and, and gone in uh completely unprepared because guns blazing i really do not like sexual persona i i really do not like camille Paglia. um i don't even know was that a good episode of the show it's a let's good episode really, let's get really meta and review our own show on the show it's a good episode because it's a bad book and we're both just completely furious yeah it is, I remember it is mostly me a... being very vituperative towards Paglia for various reasons um well, it's. I think it's our most downloaded episode. It's that and um, Michelle Welbeck. Yeah. Um, both, both which weren't really positive. Um, we we kind of had we had mixed feelings about Welbeck, and we had pure opprobrium for uh, Polya. So, choice of words. Thank you. Um, but from from pure opprobrium to quite the opposite. Borges. What did you think of it, Nick? Okay. Um, I'm going to start a little earlier. So I read, I read uh, Ficcionis first when I was 16 or, or 17. Um, and I remember, I remember seeing kind of, um, seeing it more as, as like a collection of kind of philosophical thought experiments, you know, um, his interest in, in kind of philosophy of mind, philosophy of language, um, I really, I really took to that kind of on the first pass when I was a teenager and, um, reading it again, this is the first time I've read, um, Ficcionis, like in its entirety. I mean, instead of, you know, just, um, you know, every so often I'll revisit the stories in it, but, uh, just sitting down and, and reading them in, in succession, 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 succession is when thank you leaves mm. the throne. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I also speak English. Thank you. I, the, sitting down and reading them in, in succession like, like this was, um, I think the emotional content of it was more, uh, something I took away from it. Like the, the way the stories are crafted to be stories and, and not just to be, um, thought experiments you know like yeah. mary the color scientist or something like it's it's not just setting up kind of a, a 
premise so that Borges can can explore some idea. Um, it really does function as fiction, and I, I think that's that's something that's really important, and that's not always you know in in whatever you might call speculative fiction or science fiction. Um, there isn't always the care or the craft to do that, um, and I think Borges is is a perfect exemplar of of how you can what's essentially a you know an intellectual premise um into a work of fiction and have it have it function as a story and um have it be as as emotive as it's supposed to be um to work as fiction you know it's not just uh, he's not just uh throwing you a pitch so you can write your grad school thesis you know it really yeah. is um fiction and uh that was something i i felt a little bit more appreciation for it the second time around um what is your kind of background with borges uh i i first read borges at about the same age 16 17 uh i read him because uh this was after i had read and become obsessed with roberto bolaño mm -hmm. uh who idolizes borges and uh, his his advice to he was once asked like oh what's your advice for young writers and he said he had two words, read Borges, and then reread Borges. <laughs> so I was like, I gotta read this Borges guy. And again, is that is that how you came to read him? Um, not through Bolaño. Uh, I don't know how I learned about him. Um, I certainly, you know, the first stuff that I really started reading when I was 12, 13 was like science fiction. Um, like golden age science fiction, like Silverberg and like Isaac Asimov and like Robert Heinlein and that kind of stuff. I am and, aware um, of the work of Ray Bradbury. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, all those guys kind of trace, um, you know, they trace their lineage to like pulp magazines and to kind of speculative fiction. In, in kind of the less genre, more literary kind of uh, tradition. So yeah. your, your pose and your um, Lord somethings. Uh, blanking on his name. That's it, Dunsnay. Um, your Lovecrafts and uh, kind of the, the later, you know, 20th century tradition, like speculative fiction. Pace is name checked a bunch and um, influential in pretty much any any fiction that came after him. Um, he's not at all a sci-fi writer, but you can see, you know, from the stories that he's written, kind of how how this would be a template and an inspiration for, for a lot of that style of writing. I mean, The Garden of Forking Paths um, is, you don't need to read like half of science fiction novels if you've read The Garden of Forking Paths because <laughs> he's already preempted and... Uh, done better than than they can yeah. basic concept you know all of this is to say in a very roundabout way that's probably how i found out about him i don't know i mean it was uh god almost eight years ago so yeah. uh i don't i don't really remember or maybe well, someone look, on look the internet you, said to read 16 his... eight years ago <laughs> <laughs> i'm not 24 for um a while yeah. <laughs> uh, later this year
I don't want to get too specific. I've already said my entire address. <laughs> Which you will, of course, be leaving in the, in the final release. Uh, so, yeah, Borges, uh, Fictions, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, the, the, the man himself, this, this collection in particular, uh, the readers who might be unaware of it? Sure. The so, readers, I mean, the listeners of who might be unaware of it. Last time... Last time I knew more about Borges than you did. And since then, you've read an entire biography of the man. Yes. And I have not. I do so not I, fuck around. <laughs> I've got about um, I've got about one page on Evernote, um, which is it's going to be less than you have. So take it away. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Borges was born in uh, Buenos Aires in 1899. His family tree was very interesting, actually. He had um, one English grandmother, and the rest were, well, you know, old, old Buenos Aires family. And he was descended on both sides uh, from heroes of the revolution, the Argentinian revolution that had you know, given it freedom from Spain. So he had this sort of spectre of Argentina's violent past hanging over him at all times. And... Uh, Weirdly enough, he never actually—he didn't even finish secondary school. Uh, when he was a teenager, uh, his family moved to Europe briefly, and he attended school there. But he never actually graduated or high school, as you you would call it. So he had, you know, hardly any formal education, which makes his erudition and achievement uh, even more insane. Frankly, he is. Um, I'm going to interrupt you. He is a remarkably well-read writer um to a frightening degree i mean he was of course a librarian um but you know for a good long while of his career a librarian who could not see um but yes. the and who did the, the very death. little actual library work it must be said <laughs> <laughs> the depth of his references you know the um just the citations he can pull out of a hat and uh, manipulate and uh, falsify are pretty astounding, especially if you just think that this was a time when, um, you know, the, the most effective lookup tool you had was uh, a catalog card. Yes, um, an encyclopedia, <laughs> pretty, a physical pretty, encyclopedia. Pretty amazing. Um, just when you read when you read his words, the impression of of the enormous familiarity he has with pretty much any subject he approaches. Yeah. So yeah, uh, so Fictions was his second uh, book of fiction, but he'd also he'd, he'd already published multiple books of you know nonfiction and um, poetry. And it was after he he'd, he banged his head uh, on a on a window and got septicemia. So he was testing his he was seeing whether he'd maintained his intellect after this bout of septicemia. And he did that by writing some of the greatest short stories of all time. So I think you can call that uh, a resounding success. <laughs> I think that's a, uh, I think that's a successful head check. Yeah. I think his head's okay. Yeah. Like, like imagine if, imagine if, I don't know, I'm trying to think of something else. Imagine if Thomas Pynchon had like slammed his head in a car door and then was like, I'm going to make sure this old thing's still working and had written gravity's rainbow in like two years. <laughs> That would make a lot of sense. I would, I would easily do that. <laughs> the funny thing example. would be if, if Pynchon were just a normal guy before that. <laughs> really? 
he was working at Boeing and like a plane landing wheel just slammed him straight in the head. If he were just selling windows or something before then. <laughs> <laughs> he hits his head and becomes Thomas Pynchon. Um, that could totally happen. Um, I could see it. Um, yeah, I mean, one thing one thing I have in my notes that I want to uh, bring up again is um, that by the time Borges translated and uh, kind of um, accepted by the the non um, non Latin, you know, kind of literary community, he had already been writing for a while, and he had already kind of developed in um, a self awareness and a playfulness with his own style and his own uh, his own preferred. Um, I think that's one important thing to kind of remember. Yeah, because it didn't the, happen until he was in his sixties, so he only, he only had sort of you know twenty years left alive by the time his international you know he really took off internationally. He's already um, before he started writing fiction, he was already a pretty developed poet and essayist. Yes, and uh, of course that's that's something that brings into fiction because most of his stories here take the form of. Um, an essay, like a, like an, an expository sort of voice, um, that has found something in an archive that doesn't add up or that's of interest for some reason. And, uh, you know, it goes through one or two layers of other archives, uh, to kind of, uh, excavate some, um, some story. And, and that's kind of how it's often framed, but it, it definitely does take the form of like a, um, like a a literary kind of investigation into some some text. Yes, and in, in fact, uh, at least one of the stories in here, I think it was the approach to Al Mutasim, if I remember correctly, had actually uh, been published in the guise of a, of a real essay before it was collected in fictions. I didn't know some, that. Published in a, a newspaper or something. Yeah, that's one about the um, what is it? The Indian law student who yeah. uh, goes on kind of a, a spiritual journey or a review of a uh, a text that that has that story. And, yes. Um, yeah. Kind of a criticism within. Yeah. Um, which story stuck out to you most? I mean, a, a, a particular favorite for me was the survey of the works of Herbert Quain. Because that's that's one of the ones I hadn't read before. Because the uh, the book I'd read before was mainly in an anthology, the anthology labyrinths. Mm -hmm. So some of these stories aren't in there, and I mostly enjoyed that because reading about it, I was like, oh, these novel, these you know, this novel sounds like something I'd love to read. I wish it was real rather than Borges <laughs> just having described it and not actually gone about doing it. He says something like that in the preface, right? That um, that he's he's essentially um, he's. Uh, saving himself time and, and kind of um chickening out in a way yes uh, more yes um yeah I've, I've written reviews instead of these books because uh i'm a more reasonable a more inept and more lazy man <laughs> right that in, instead of um instead of producing um you know a work of of literature that has uh you know that gets to a certain point he can produce a secondary work of literature or a tertiary work of literature about, about that. Um, yeah. About that work that, um, 
that introduces the idea that he wants to convey and complicates it in a really interesting way. I mean, I, I, I think that's, um, let me think. So the lottery of Babylon, um, yeah. is a, a very good example of this because he introduces a, um, you know, he's writing from, uh, sort of a, a historian, I suppose in, in this fictional Babylon where, um, there's a, you know, there's a, a lottery that, that starts as, as sort of a recognizable, um, game of chance and reward that grows to encompass, uh, everything in the society that, that could possibly done, be done. So, you know, any, any outcome is subject to a, um, a great game of chance that's, that's obscured and, uh, kept secret and, and no one is really quite sure of its nature. And you come to the realization that because the, the, um, speaker is a part of this, um, society where everything is subject to chance and, and every, um, you know, every document has, um, you know, every document is subject to that procedure, uh, and it's, it's composition that, um, there's, there's no possible way you can trust this document. There's no possible way that you can rely on the speaker because, um, even his own writings is subject to this great, uh, game of chance, which is such a marvelously illustrated idea. All right. Tell me what well, detail there, I got wrong. Go ahead. No, no, it's just, there is there's one, <laughs> one little detail that stood out to me. It's li literally just one line is, is the narrator saying at one point, I have but little time remaining. We are told that the ship is about to sail, but I will try to explain. So just sort of, he does this frequently, but he just, there's just one line that sort of twists the narration slightly that makes it less definite because we think, oh, it's just a statement of a historian. But then this, this one line sort of implies a definite listener and the situation mm -hmm. in which it's being related. He does this remarkably well. Um, there will be just small details that totally totally change or complicate the reading of of the story i i think in um oh goodness what's the one where he he makes a uh the circular ruins um there's one line in in the beginning of the circular ruins where i think it's, it says something like you know the um goodness i forget the noun used but you know sort of the 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 guy who creates the uh the fire god um, he, he goes to the, to the ruins where he's, he's going to dream up this God and, uh, says he's, he, um, he awoke to find all of his, you know, wounds had, had been healed yeah. you know, was, and wasn't surprised. He was unsurprised to find that, that his wounds had, had healed something like that. And that totally changes how you would read the story, you know, yeah. um, for kind of an obvious way. Um, but a very subtle, you know, a very subtle way. I mean, just, just kind of throwing that in there that, that on a second reading, kind of having, having already gone through the story once you, that jumps out at you and it completely changes what interpretations you might find viable. And it's, it's such a, he's very, very subtle about this kind of artistry. Yes. Ev everything is sort of compressed with him because obviously he's working in such a short form, every detail like that has to be you know diamond a diamond point just 
precision tool. Here's here's one sentence which will sort of explode the whole rest of the story. There's a, I think probably one of the more intricate stories is um, is the title of this first half is is the Garden of Paths. The title first half, um, because it it takes the form of like a like a spy narrative. You know, you have a um, uh, you have a well. First of all, it's it's couched in. Uh, the speaker is is reading this history that doesn't actually exist in yes. real life, um, and he's reading uh, the story of um, this. Uh, I forget the fellow's name, but he's a he's a Chinese man working for a spy um, for the uh, the Prussians um, and uh, or the German Empire, um, and uh, it's very strangely paced because. It starts that he's trying to escape this um, Irish counterintelligence agent who's, um, you know, who's trying to, you know, apprehending him. He's burned his contact. He needs to get out um, a message to his superiors of which city is going to be bombed. Um, but more than half of the story is him in the home of like a um, an orient orientalist, sinologist. Yes, yeah, an uh, expert in Chinese literature, and he produces this uh, work that he happens to have uh, made by uh, an ancestor of our, our Chinese spy. Um, and they discuss the philosophical content of this work, um, not really directly, but uh, the content in its creation of how, how each, each moment can kind of go different ways. And so the, uh, the path of, um, possible outcomes bifurcates kind of at, at each moment um, that there is just just an infinite number of of branches that um, that events can take and you realize kind of as the story goes on how um, how that's uh, illustrated in the very the writing of the story itself because there's there's all these kind of details like that the the spy is working for the Germans because he wants to prove that um, a, a Chinese man can be, uh, you know, as, as effective, a, an agent as, uh, any German can. And, um, you have, you know, these, these weird kind of things like the, the, um, the spy for the Irish and the spy for the, the Germans is Chinese. Yeah. And, um, he manages to get the message out to his superiors of what city is going to be bombed. Uh, through the surname of the the sinologist whom he murders that shows up in the papers and his superiors know that that name means um there's a city with the same you know yeah. same name as this this fellow's surname um and and they know which city to bomb there's all sorts of things in there that kind of suggest that this is one branch that could have be, been taken um but there's there's so much kind of negative space i guess of of other um yeah there's so much that's provisional exactly um and it's it's so it's so beautifully done that you might not really you know it, it's not it doesn't hit you over the head with it it can kind of be it, it's a pretty subtle story i guess yeah um in in how much he he packs into it 
um, with a fairly, certainly a, a strange narrative, but not not a flashy one. Yes, and obviously that it's, you know, it's what ten pages less than that. It's, they're all very short. Yes, yeah, they're all very short. The, the longest thing he ever wrote, which is not in this collection, uh, was fourteen pages. I mean, one thing, one one theme he plays in with in a couple different stories here is um, how uh, how things outside of a text um, can can change our our reading of them, right? Um, yeah. Probably the most obvious of this is um, uh, Clon Ukbar Orbis Tertius. Oh, really? Hard to, hard to I say. Thought, I thought you were going to say Pierre Maynard. Yeah, Pierre Maynard. I mean, that's that's what I'm going to kind of contrast with that. But um, you know, there's there's a, a school of of thinking in uh, I want to say Tlon, uh that uh, that all texts originate from the same author. That they're all. Um, you remember this because yeah. because there's um because they don't believe in in kind of the concrete world. Um, that that sort of implies that uh, that anything that you read is going to be, um, you know, from from one mind essentially. Um, that they live in um, Bishop Barclay Estan, basically, where Barclay and idealism is the law of the land, and uh, everything has to be perceived, um, you know, by by the one mind uh, for. You know, for it to exist, there's there's not a, a concrete reality that kind of persists outside of perception. Um, so they they live in a world where um, Barclay's strange uh, defense for for God uh, <laughs> is essentially the um, is the truth. And you know, they talk about how you know how does that how does that change? You know, what what is fiction is written? You know, there's not really fiction like we have and how does that change how how it's read yeah. um this is something in my notes that probably i could have expounded on more a month ago <laughs> I'm, I'm afraid um so let's sweep that under the rug and and talk a little about pierre menard because that's that's probably a clearer example um yeah i mean I, I do have one point to make about uh clon ukbar Orbis Tertius. <laughs> Go right ahead. And it's that um, I thought it's, it's interesting that uh, Borges puts it as the first story in the collection because uh, his his only his previous book of fiction was a Universal History of Infamy, which is obviously it's a very different book because it's just sort of stories of you know the gaucho, the caudillo on the pampas, you know knives, blood, and things. There's there's less of the metaphysical, you know, infinities that he's facing here. But in, in in Tlon Ukbar, it's sort of near the start, it says, uh, th those four additional pages held the article on Uk Ukbar. So it's just, you know, these four pages contain the seeds for this, and, you know, this entire sort of alternate dimension, which will overtake our own. And it's a model of sort of how you know, all, of, all of his stuff is very short, but it can, you know, if you, if you unpack it, it can go, go on forever, basically. Right, which has terrible consequences for the people in the story, right? Yes. Because because uh, they sort of have a a mania that develops around uh, this uh, this world, and um, 
you know, some shady characters uh, kind of become obsessed with promoting it and, and it sort of um, overtakes people's uh, commitment to, to the material world. Yeah. Um, it's a very interesting detail to throw in there because it's not at all necessary for um, kind of the metaphysics that he's expo exploring, which, like I said, um, unfortunately, I've had to read uh, Bishop Barclay and uh, it's, it's, you know, almost word for word that. Um, My favorite but, member of the Chicago Bulls. That's Charles Barkley. <laughs> I, hey, I don't know about Charles Barkley's ecumenical status. He could have been made a bishop by now. I don't know what he's been um, up to. I don't know. I don't know if Charles Barkley believes in a, uh, a concrete world that persists outside of, uh, outside of perception by, by humans or perception by God. I don't know. Charles Barkley believes that uh, the all-encompassing mind of God has to continue uh, perceiving the world for it to uh, for it to subsist. But maybe he does. I don't know. The next press conference uh, he has, he's an ESPN <laughs> commentator now, um, so maybe he can throw a little bit about that in there. Um, and uh, Charles, Steve, we know you listen to the show. Just just look at it. And Stephen A. Smith can uh, can um, attack his position, I guess, as a Kantian. You know, he can say this is, you know, blasphemous. Uh, Stephen A. Smith tends to do. These references are lost on you, I'm sure. <laughs> but... I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> I don't know anything about Barclayan theory or ESPN. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. The, uh, the overlap of those two interests is not, is not large. <laughs> <laughs> you may be the only person to ever have combined them into a joke. Well, it wasn't a good joke to begin with. I never said can that. Just... <laughs> <laughs> we can just skip right over that and talk about, uh, Pierre Menard, author, author of the Quixote, because this was a fantastic story and maybe my favorite in this uh yeah also a uh, quick quick digression i also uh, i re-listened to the episode uh on the unbearable lightness of being with our, our friend leo delmar and uh, you pronounce it quixotic at one point did i yeah and i'm surprised i didn't i didn't take you up on it there so i will defend that I think I think it is quixotic because You're it's wrong. not a, it's not as it's not a Spanish word. It's it's not it's not quixotic. That's no, not quixotic. a word in Spanish. It's not, that's not a word in Spanish. It's it's a loan word. You know, we're we're taking we're kind of adjective in we, we still pronounce um, Kafkaesque Kafkaesque. We don't call it Kafkaesque, do we? No, because that's that's how you that's how you pronounce a vowel diphthong in English. <laughs> Chaotic. Okay. Would you would you if you're if you were watching um I don't know Dragon Ball Z, and someone asks you what you were doing, would you say I'm watching anime? No, you'd say oh I'm watching anime. I'd say I'm watching Dragon Ball Why? Z. <laughs> You're you're being obtuse, and I have a point that it's and your it's point quixotic. is wrong. It's not quixotic. It, no, it's chaotic. I I I 
but that's not Spanish either because it's not <laughs> Don Quixote. It's Don Quixote. Don yeah, Quixote. Pr- we pronounce it Don Quixote here in uh, England, land, land, land. See, and you're mispronouncing it. It's not. It's not. I have no respect for the Spanish. <laughs> it's not Quixote. It's Quixote. And if you're going to be a purist about it, you need to be a purist about it, and you need to go around uh, the Midlands of England telling people <laughs> that they're being Quixotic. If the, if the Spanish wanted me to pronounce their words correctly, the Armada should have been successful. Go around telling people <laughs> that, um, you know, uh, I respect I respect your idealism, but I think that's a little bit too quixotic. And they will say, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> Did you mean quixotic? <laughs> I've literally never heard anyone pronounce it quixotic here in England. <sighs> Am I at the point in the argument where I'm going to look this up? Because I'm going to look this up and it's going to say I'm right. Well, yeah, on your awful Yankee internet, which is biased, untrustworthy. Uh, I will, I'll have you know that my VPN puts me in <laughs> Kazakhstan. <laughs> Don't bring the liberal Kazakhstani media into this. Quixotic. Quixotic. Go fuck yourself. Quixotic. <laughs> uh, K-W-I-K. Uh, apostrophe S A with an umlaut D I K is the pronunciation guide I'm seeing here on Google. Uh, I am right. Fake news. I'm right. Also, on <laughs> now that we're on this, on the one of the first episodes, uh, <laughs> you said that I should say Tony Soprano. Soprano. <laughs> Tony Soprano. Soprano. It's not the Sopranos. <laughs> it is. It's the Sopranos. It's the Sopranos. If I'm at a dinner party with fucking Oscar Wilde, <laughs> it's the. So- <laughs> Actually, that would be a say it dis- on the show. <laughs> the Sopranos. Oh no, that was an off. That was wasn't wasn't Irish at all. Hard to chart to chart. The Sopranos. There, that's what it should be. I can disrespect the Irish too. I can disrespect every ethnicity if you give me all day. <laughs> if I'm at a pub in Belfast, I'll say it that way. Fuck but the polls. I and I just bent over and let you erroneously correct my pronunciation of an American TV show. <laughs> um no mercy. <laughs> all right. Um Pierre Maynard. Pure <laughs> author of the quicksoaked. No, because I'm... <laughs> you're not getting it. Oh my god. Lord have mercy on this fool child. Um All right, Don Quixote. <laughs> <laughs> the episode's over. <laughs> Um, don't <laughs> do you want us to get through this book? No, <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, donkey. Uh, fucking hell. <laughs> oh man, did you um, did you hear that? Um, the 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 answer phone message that uh, New Zealand cinema left? No. So uh, obviously the cinemas in New Zealand are all closed because of COVID. And someone at one of the cinemas recorded like a, a, an answering machine message for the phone line. But he, he he had to take multiple takes 
and he forgot to like delete the early takes. <laughs> so it's just all of the all of the takes that went wrong, and then the correct ones were just you know, welcome to sit up. Fuck, fuck, shit, fuck. <laughs> ah, fuck off. Ah, fuck me, fuck. Okay, okay, here we go, here we go. <laughs> it's, it's great stuff. Yeah. Do you have a what's your answering machine uh, message? I don't have an answering machine because uh, I'm 25 years old. <laughs> I spent like half an hour on mine. It took me so long. Really? Yeah. It's hi. You've reached Nick Riley. I can't come to the phone right now, so please leave a message after the tone. And I, I can okay. I did that cold right. Yeah. Now, but when because I spent hours practicing it for the answering machine, I will get it wrong like again and again and again like i'm a trained musician i shouldn't yeah this shouldn't be hard for me just yeah, saying but you did also sentence. make your friends do like 50 takes in a row and then he didn't speak to you for like three years <laughs> it, it wasn't three years it was about a month um <laughs> but yeah eric was not happy with me for that but it's all right um i don't, I ever... don't even have voicemail turned on on my phone if if someone wants to reach me they'll reach me they don't need to leave me a voicemail yeah that's people don't really leave voicemails they they just call and and don't i guess you know you could leave a text i guess if you miss me but and leave a voicemail you know i can i can listen to that anywhere i don't have to there's no obligation to reply like i don't i i call people that's i that's what i do i if i if i want to talk to someone i call them um i don't want to you know i'm not a texter I don't like to text. Yeah, I mean, I, I mostly only have to make phone calls at work and people never respond to voicemails, so I never bother. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, 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 a, I'm a caller. I, I, I call people. Pierre Maynard. <laughs> <laughs> and I also read Pierre Maynard, author of The Quixote. Um, so threw me off my game. I got to get back <laughs> into like talking about books mode. Yeah, so th this is one that also explores the idea of um, what do we bring to a text outside of of, of just what's read, and uh, so so Borges uh, presents this story that's that's about a I want to say nineteenth century French author. Um, no, it's contemporary. Contemporary. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I wouldn't have got that wrong a month ago. Um, <laughs> yeah, a contemporary French writer who. Um, tries as hard as he can to uh, find a way to write Don Quixote, um, the text, you know, completely as it's written by uh, Miguel de Cervantes, but not, not in a way of, of just copying it, of, of writing it and meaning it, of kind of speaking those words anew, kind of re, uh, reincarnating them, as it were. It's, it's difficult to describe. Yes, as in... As in, he, he doesn't read. He doesn't just read the Quixote and try and write and copy it out. He tries to, he tries to have it emerge naturally as his own writing in exactly the same words that Cervantes wrote it in. Right. Yeah. And and Borges talks about you know what what approaches can he take to do this? You know, I mean, the only way to, you know, he, he to be Miguel Cervantes, you know, he's got to, uh, he's got to, you know, live his life. He's got to live in like. You know, seventeenth century Spain. He's got to defend Christendom from the dirty Ottomans. Right. Yeah. He has to. <laughs> he has to be a, a prisoner of the Moors. I think. Um, yep. Be, like, be a tax collector. Lose his hand and all his teeth. Mm -hmm. And um, 
you know, he can't do that, you know, so how, how can he write uh, Quixote again? And, and uh, he talks about, you know, he gives an example of certain passages, you know, the, um, what is it, the, the memory and mother of history kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I think I'm getting that right. Um, and, uh, you know, talks about how, okay, you know, this is, this is essentially the vernacular that Cervantes would have written in. Um, and but when it's written again by a, a contemporary Frenchman, is there a sense of irony? Is there a sense of like artent- intentional artistic archaicism? You know that that's um, that's read into it again. If if we know that the writer is a contemporary Frenchman, and it's so interesting the way he illustrates this idea of um, of reading a, a text again with a completely different context behind its author. I mean, it's a very simple idea, but uh, it's it's the way that he he presents it, you know, and he closes yeah. the story suggesting, what if we read The Imitation of Christ as if it were written by Louis Ferdinand Céline? And I, I, I just, it's a remarkable, remarkable idea for a story and, and you know, a, a remarkable preemptive, preemption um of like you know Roland Barthes yeah uh, and and all of this literary theory that would come up you know come 20 years uh, later exactly after the war and and uh you know a good amount of time later yeah and it is it, it is also just uh the immediate my immediate response at least to the bit where he you know he quotes first here is the original line from Cervantes and then here is the line as, as Maynard wrote it and it's exactly the same sentence but he says isn't Maynard so much deeper and more impressive? And that's that's very funny to me. <laughs> it's just yeah, a very good joke. <laughs> there is, there is. I mean, there's there's a real sense in humor. Um, it's like like we said, you know, at this point, you know, Borges was was not young, and and he he knew kind of what what had preoccupied him already as, and kind of what tropes had, um, you know stuck out to him throughout his career so he, he already had a sense of playfulness with his own uh with his own work um that yeah it's it's funny it certainly is lively good yes we are making him sound a bit uh what's the word dour that's it dour and serious but he's you know he can be sort of very sprightly and amusing yeah he is he's very he's a very energetic writer um, you get the sense uh, when you read when you read him that he's been a very careful editor. You know that that yeah. there's so, so much. You know you you can always tell. I think with writing that's been well edited that everything adds something. You know there's yes. there's absolutely no nothing superfluous. There's no fat. Mm-hmm. There's not a single sentence that doesn't um, develop. Or, or complicate um, the the basic content of, of the story. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I know what Bologna means, you know, kind of saying read Borges and read Borges again, because y- you can really point to a better example of um, how to write the tightest short story imaginable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just, yeah. he's, he's just, one of, one of the best of all time. You just you just have to say it. You just got to respect game. 
I think um one more one more point I want to make this I was talking earlier about um you know how is this not a thought experiment or how are these not thought experiments how are these not you know essentially prompts for philosophy papers yeah and uh I think a great example of this is the library of Babel yeah um, I think if 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 listeners are familiar with any story in here it's going to be that one that's that's a pretty pretty famous story so I won't spend too much time uh re recapitulating it um but it, it's basically, you know, the setup is you have a, a, a universe that's an infinite library and uh, it's uh, divided into these hexagonal rooms that have, um, you know, shelves of books and the books contain um, every possible string of uh, characters, you know, in a, in a certain symbol set. Um, and of course, the point of this is that you can't, um, you can't, uh, find any meaning in the in the books that are written because you know you could read a word that means something in english but means something completely different in uh some other language that is visibly indistinguishable from english yeah. or spanish or whatever you have um or you could read a book that is you know almost entirely the truth but slightly wrong or you could read a book that's a proof of the veracity of some other book uh, or a uh, false proof of, of the veracity of that book or you know a, a proof of the falsity of, of some book that that is true or uh, a map of all the books in the library that are true or a false map of, yeah. of that library or but you of, know but of, but of course the majority of the books are just gibberish because mm -hmm. you know the majority of character combinations are not words they're just you know random strings of letters Right for for basic you know combinatorics reasons. Um, yeah, so this almost is none of it is going to be legible in in any language. Yeah, so th this is one of the sort of some some of some of the repercussions of some of the ideas are horrifying, really. And this is maybe the this the most horrifying simply because it is endless. And you know, some of the librarians resort to murdering each other mm -hmm. or to suicide. Just this idea of endlessness, the idea of you know, the human mind experiencing this this endless infinity of you know combinations, the the tantalizing idea that the truth is out there, and so is its proof, but so is its disproof, which may or may not be true, and so is the proof of the disproof, but it's also the disproof of the disproof. And, you know, nothing is ever stable or finalized. Right. Yeah. And I th I think what what really elevates this story into being you know, completely unforgettable is, is that attention he has to how do people, how do people develop uh, society, you know, yeah. in, in this kind of, uh, in these kind of conditions, you know, how, how do, how do people handle this? You know, there's, you know, some people uh, are, you know, there's some librarians who, who are taking to, you know, trying to destroy, you know, books that they think are wrong. You know, some people think that there is, you know, some one book somewhere that's, that's going to, uh, provide a, a reliable map yeah. of you know what what do we know to be true kind of thing, um, and you know of course you said some people kill themselves, kill other people, um, fling themselves down the infinite uh, uh, shaft, I guess between you know between the yeah these and of course even, even the most determined 
person who does set out in search of you know the true book will only be able to cover a tight and infinitesimal fraction of the library in the, you know if they dedicate their entire lives to it yeah yeah exactly um he he posits you know that some people believe that the library might be circular obviously um you know if you have if you have finite books and a finite symbol set um there's I'm sorry, if you have a finite symbol set and a finite length of your books, then uh, just mathematically you, you have a finite number of books that you can that you can uh, that can be written. Yeah. Um, that uh, obviously it's a very large number, um, but it is not not infinite. Um, and so you uh, you know you get you get this sort of uh, question of you know well is it is it possible that you get to one end and then you you find that the end of that is, is the beginning of a perfect sort of thing, yeah. um, which is, um, I don't know if that's more or less horrifying than, than uh, it just being a very large, finite space. But uh, it's, it's a remarkable story for, I think, how, how the tone of it, you know, it's, it's, very, it's very sad. It's, it's kind of a mournful sort of account of, of this universe this great yeah. library it's it's that uh you know it's because he's a careful writer and because he's a a thoughtful and, and human writer that it's not just a a, a combinatorics word problem you know yeah um it's remarkable i mean i don't know i always wonder if claude shannon had read this you know the father of information theory um uh, once okay. again, you're flying over my head here. <laughs> it's a it's a mathematical theory that uh, quantifies information. You know, if we have, I don't know, if I have two signals for you, um, you know, a, a one or a zero. One, I think that's a bit. Yeah, I, I haven't studied information theory, but I've <laughs> I flipped through some textbooks. Um, you know, and, and if I have a larger symbol set, you know, how can I um, how can I get to you, and how can I you know what? What can I take away and and keep my keep my message unambiguous or probable probabilistically unambiguous? Like yeah, um, and uh, you know for a long time that was not that was not a quantifiable thing that wasn't in the realm of mathematics. But after um, the invention of the telephone, especially the invention of the computer, you know that became very important. Um, is if we want to transmit a message, how much information do we need? you know what what time and what space constraints do we have what time constraints do we have that kind of thing. yeah um this is a very it's a very good uh protonic example of that i think i don't know that's just a random aside i wonder <laughs> if claude shannon had ever read the library of Havel. i wonder if claude shannon listens to this podcast <laughs> um is he dead <laughs> i believe so it's a long time ago he was like he worked for I want to say work for Bell Labs. They broadcast Pulch in heaven. Yeah, yeah. Or hell. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm uh, out of things to say, basically. <laughs> Are there any have... stories we haven't touched on? Um... No, they're not. We've, we've talked about them all. Fiction, it's completed. All right. Um, Jorge Luis Borges, Ficciones.
good, good book. Um, very short book too. Like I think the whole thing, this this half, I, it was published as a whole, I think, but there's two parts collected uh, the, in the, in the, the, the first part was initially published separately. That's right. And then when he had uh, enough stories to fill in the second part, he decided to just add, add them, combine them into a single volume. Sorry, I think the first part is what eight pages, ninety pages. It's very short. Oh yeah, it's not even a hundred page. Oh no, yeah, eighty-seven pages. Yeah, you could yeah, you could read it in a sitting, and uh, it's probably going to take you more time to listen to this episode than it would to read the whole the first section. (laughs) That's true, Um, but uh, I couldn't read it in a sitting. I I don't know what your experience of this was, but I I would read one story and think you know good Lord, I need to walk around. Like I need a cigarette. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't want to, I can't just plow through it. I basically, I basically I'm, had I'm, to. My head is spinning. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I basically had to read it in a single sitting given how, how late I started it before recording. Oh, okay. The section, the well, first time my, we tried. It's my view that that's less than ideal. I think, I think these, giving these stories time to uh, germinate it is uh, it is less than ideal but you you suggested it on like thursday and on the friday i had a stag do and i spent all of saturday in bed recovering from the stag do i don't know what a stag do is a bachelor party oh okay okay all right uh, at one point on my way home which i don't i don't remember i was i was i got really drunk i got so drunk i i asked one of my co-workers because it was a work stag do like what happened? I don't know. Do you remember the Jacobum woman? No. What happened? You bought eight at once, and I was so disgusted. I changed tables. Oh my god! That's... And I, I don't remember this, which is frankly more evidence in favour of it happening than in disfavour. <laughs> so I was already blackout drunk by the time I had eight Jacobums. Was it you? What? This wasn't around for the table. You? No. Nope, just... This was. This was for me. <laughs> oh my god! Uh, so at one point on the way home. Uh, I fell into a patch of stinging nettles, and uh, I don't remember it happening. I only realized because I woke up and I was covered uh, in stings. <laughs> my my headphones had disappeared, and I was you know my clothes were mud stained. I had all bits of plants and things in my hair. <laughs> See, I am. Um, I woke up kind of late this morning because last night I was I was out. Uh, I was carousing with a. Uh, like a right winger, like Albanian, uh, in, in Logan Square. And oh I, dear. I'm, unfortunately, I got I got to the point I was I was drunk enough off mezcal that I stopped caring about drink prices. And uh, <laughs> oh, the rest no. of the night, the rest of the night, I was drinking like a double like uh, Glenlivet twelve year. Oh boy, fantastic scotch, but it's also about uh, twelve dollars a pour. So <laughs> that is that is that is that is the the worst part of getting really drunk. It's like this drink costs how much? Yeah, fuck it. <laughs> exactly. Like, let me take the round. You know, give me a, a double Glenlivet. Great scotch, but uh, I don't know if I could really appreciate it. <laughs> um, so, if you want my advice, start start on the start on the twelve year whiskey, and uh, then shift know, to the mezcal, and, and then move to cheap mezcal. Yeah, yeah, and then become a. a government consul in mexico have your ex-wife <laughs> yourself <to> death, yeah. <laughs> have your ex-wife come visit you have a very symbolic day and then get murdered and thrown in a ditch by mexican fascists albanian fascists this time yeah oh very nice very, very nice fellow not not really 
<laughs> that guy is certainly a right winger. Being a right wing Albanian, he is like like as in from Albania or like descendant of Albanians. Oh, from from Albania. He's almost certainly killed people. <laughs> How old he's was he? Qu- he's not quite old enough. He's my age. Yeah. Oh, okay. I mean, you never know. <laughs> well, he's also in Chicago. You know, I mean, that's that's he killed people here too. Yeah, we all, we also I, can, we also murder people. I didn't specify where he'd killed people. What else? I uh, I got him to laugh uproariously when I called Greece Western. That was my <laughs> that was my zinger for the night. Um, what else? Uh, some some guy bar almost started a fight with me because there was um, you know that uh, you know that one song that's like, uh, now I'm on amputee. Goddamn you! I I'm not sick, but I'm not well. That song? No. I said it was by REM. <laughs> and uh this guy in a bar almost fight, like, started a fight with me <laughs> which part was he mad about was he was he was he defending rem or was he defending the actual artist no, he hated him? rem but, <laughs> but he, he loved the he, he loved, loved that the song. artist that made it he loved that song it was on in a jukebox and i said it was rem and he was like hopping mad <laughs> um Good, good Saturday night overall. Great times, yeah. Yeah. Um, was was this last night? This was last night, yeah. So I woke up at like like ten thirty today. Nice. Uh, last banging. night, last night I saw Heather's the musical. <laughs> oh, sick! How was it? It's fucking amazing. It was great. Yeah, it's a, it's a good musical. I I was I like Heather's the movie, so I was suspicious when it came out, but good musical, good musical. Yeah, it was, it was a good time, but I'm like, you just gotta prove you're not a loser anymore. I'm, 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 I'm taking some time off drinking because I've got a blood test uh, that I need to book when I've stopped drinking. <laughs> and it's, it's very difficult not being drunk. I went to bed at half past nine on Friday because I just didn't know what to do with myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um, I just had a drug test for um, a. Uh job i have <laughs> and uh you can't yeah. talk about it it's with the government um i can't talk about it because i don't want to be fired um <laughs> but, getting drunk with right-wing albanians we can't have that kind of man here um yeah 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 no but i i, I think i'm good like i, I haven't uh, smoked any in uh you know about a month yeah and uh yeah I, they can't pop me on anything. <laughs> I mean, my my blood test is supposed to reflect uh, a lowered alcohol consumption, which is very very much not the case, especially with that stag do. <laughs> why uh, why do you need this done? Uh, it's for my celiac, but it was like, oh, your liver's a bit iffy. How much are you drinking? And I told them, and they're like, oh, that's quite a lot. Tell you what, stop drinking, and we'll retest you in a few months. And uh, I didn't stop drinking. <laughs> when's when's the blood test? Uh, I need to book it, so I'm I'm putting it off uh, for, for for a while until I actually st- stop drinking. <laughs> I mean, like I, said, I haven't drunk since. Yeah, I haven't drunk this week. <laughs> um. Oh, jeez. Um. I didn't know this was me by Antonio Bree. All right, never mind. Um. Uh, yeah, I would just book it. I would. I would. I don't know. Do you? Uh, do you drink enough that quitting drinking is like a medical threat to you? Not that much, but it's no, but it's like if if I if I book it too soon, then the levels will still be up. 
That's I'll true. I don't know what the half-life of alcohol is. I mean, I guess you're not testing your blood alcohol. No, it's, it's, it's not, no, it's not, it's not very long, but I've been drinking a lot for a while. Yeah. I don't know. I think, uh, well, you're the Christian one here. You tell me what you're supposed to do. <laughs> it becomes the, the, the blood of the Lord as soon as it enters my body. So technically it shouldn't show up in these tests at all because it's not alcoholic. <laughs> once I've drunk I just it. go to church a ton. <laughs> I am always receiving communion five times a day. I receive a handle of communion every weekend. <laughs> yeah, I just I just bring a bring a bring a fifth in. I get the priest to bless it, and then I just chuck it right there to be extra holy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just uh, I just have that that little uh, little cup of communion wine, and I toss it in my sixer of Stella Artois, and that's that's. <laughs> my church going experience um or carling probably what you drink right no i don't i don't touch that nasty canned beer yeah celiac disease that's right yeah not that i I didn't drink beer before anyway because it tastes disgusting really i like a nice uh i like a nice guinness all right uh jorge luis borges everyone (laughs) um Uh, do you want to take a break yeah let's take a quick five come back and uh Getting the rest of the show. Yeah. And we're back. Uh, so uh, after, you know, tales of drunken tomfoolery, do you want to get back to literature? Let's do it. Uh, so do you want to do do go with the news? Uh, so obviously uh, it's been a long time since the last episode. So a lot of news, which I've winnowed down. Uh, first off, uh, 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 a, a, a Soviet television adaptation of the Fellowship of the Rings was unearthed in the state's television archives. How is it? Is it supposed to be good? Uh, it's supposed to be as good as a Soviet television version of the Fellowship of the Ring could be, <laughs> given that the, the budget is apparently uh, in the negatives. <laughs> uh, I've not watched it because I don't think there are any English subtitles yet. But I've seen pictures, and you know, it looks cute. It looks like you know a bunch of a bunch of Russians doing their best with what they've got. To, you know, I mean, if if I was working for Russian television in the nineties, uh, I'd maybe pick something a bit less challenging to adapt. Yeah, it is. It is uh, epic fantasy, if ever there was any. Um... <laughs> Wasn't there an animated um, The Hobbit? Right? Wasn't there uh, a, a Hobbit animated movie? Yes, there was a Rankin Bass. I know it's top, but there was also before that, uh, there was a 10 minute version of The Hobbit that some company, they had the rights to The Hobbit and they were about to expire. So they got one guy to whip up like a 10 minute short film of The Hobbit so they could keep the rights. Uh, there was, they had to do that with like a Hellraiser. Two. Oh my do you God. remember this? There was like a Hellraiser they made in like 2011 or something <laughs> that they they just needed to like keep the IP active for some yeah. legal reason or tax reason or something. And uh, Clive Barker refused to let them put from the mind of Clive Barker <laughs> on this wow. one because he said, this is not from my mind at all. 
Yeah, but, every, Alex, but everything from three really, onwards was fine, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, you know, even when I mean, Clive Barker loves money. Obviously, he'll let them license anything, and uh, he wouldn't let them put from the mind. You know, they still had Hellraiser; it could still be Hellraiser, but he wouldn't let them put, put from the mind of it. Clive Barker because he said, "This is not from my mind at all." Yeah, um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's uh, they didn't get the same guy to be uh, Pinhead. Yeah, so it was like it's just you know because it's usually the same actor, right? I don't I forget his name. Doug Brown. Um, yeah, it's not Doug Bradley. It's like just some random guy that doesn't look anything like him. <laughs> and uh, you think yeah. you think it would be easy enough to make him look like Doug Bradley, given that he has to wear like a full face mask anyway. Right. You can't really. You can't really. You shouldn't be able to tell, but you can tell <laughs> that the actor is like just some random guy who was oh probably God. doing like commercials before that. <laughs> yeah, this was one of these. I got really stoned yeah. and watched this with Alex and Heiser. And uh, it wasn't it wasn't good. Like it wasn't even good. Like, oh, this is terrible. How how could they make this? No. It was just a formally a movie so that they could <laughs> keep the IP active for for whatever reason they needed to. That is a good segue, actually, into the next news item on the topic of authors who take the name off film adaptations. Uh, Alan Moore, who keeps the score, is apparently bursting at the seams with fiction. His words. Uh, he signed a book deal for a, a collection of short stories and an epic fantasy series. Oh, nice. Given, given the rate at which he works, uh, unlike the Game of Thrones one, we are definitely going to see the end of this, probably by the end of the decade. <laughs> That's good. I mean, it's it's been a made anything that uh, I would want to read. You know, he's he's been into his whole, oh, I'm an anarchist wizard kind of thing for, for a bit, and he, he did something on that. So, I had zero interest in reading and uh, um, going back to your, uh, your phrase of, of bursting seams, he, he did another, another sort of seam burster as it were, a lot yeah. of seams bursting and, and his uh, did like a erotica thing, which is, it's, I don't, I don't want, don't yeah. keep, keep, that away, keep that away from me. You don't want to think about Alan Moore being horny? I Al- don't want to think about Alan, Alan Moore. Morney. Being a being a randy little boy, um, <laughs> he's no. uh, he's he is shorter than you would expect, actually. Alan Moore, <laughs> that's that's not at all surprising. He has like yeah. five foot four guy energy. <laughs> he's 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 only a little shorter than me. He's about an inch or two shorter than me because uh, I met him. I don't know if I've mentioned this on the podcast before. When did you meet Alan Moore? Uh, May twenty nineteen. Had a very firm and warm handshake. Top bloke. Did I not tell you I about this? You did. did you take a picture? No, I didn't get a picture because it was looked like it was at a, an event for like his his dead friend's book was being posthumously published and he'd written a forward for it. And I thought, wow, it'd be a bit disrespectful of me to like, wow, Mr. Moore, can I get a picture of, with you at this event to memorialize your dead friend? <laughs> Seemed a bit gauche. Not that, that that didn't stop other people from like asking for signatures and taking pictures. But the, the, the girl who talked to him before me had a copy of V for Vendetta, and he was like, oh, sorry, I don't sign that anymore. <laughs> so that was fun. What you just said reminds me of um, somehow, it's, if you ever look at the front page of Reddit, like I do sometimes, just out of <laughs> morbid, uh, morbid curiosity. It is a form of self-harm, <laughs> but there's, there's sometimes people who will like post pictures of their grandparents like on their deathbed. 
oh my god <laughs> um and uh you know with some like inspiring caption you know like this is doug he's 95 he's been my idol my whole life you yeah know, that kind like... of thing just so that people can can um give them points and like yeah. you know, comment like oh that's you know he's so sweet you know like i can your family like kind i can of thing, kind of just like i'm i'm imagining the like like what is that like to okay grandpa stay there i'm gonna snap a pic real quick so hundreds of strangers will like kiss my ass yeah yeah there was another like there was another like viral photo that i thought was so weird it was like um it was like some someone's uh son had like died in a uh, car crash and his heart was harvested and used to help someone who needed a a heart transplant is harvested the 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 formal medical term for it (laughs) They cut it out of his chest and put it in someone else's chest. I think it's unambiguous. Uh, but anyway, like there was like there was a photo going around, like viral kind of inspirational tearjerker, whatever, of like um, the man's parents, the man who died's parents, like listening to their son's heart beating, yeah, and and like you know crying as you know just as inconsolably sad uh, as as you would be. In that kind of a moment and i was just thinking like who was who was the fucker with the camera who was like all right you're you're beside yourself yeah thinking of your, your recently dead son let's snap let's, one for the gram let's snap a pic <laughs> so this can go on twitter yeah um, you like, know what i mean like just a little bit of discretion yeah uh, it's it's insane like who is the guy who's thinking you know what photo op <laughs> i bet this is gonna do numbers i mean with 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 the grandparent thing i can i could sort of understand it if it was on a platform like you know facebook where you know conceptually like it's it is just people you know who you know some of them may even have met your grandfather like some of my friends have met my granddad so you know so you know but obviously if it's just like posting this to reddit get one millions of strangers to look at this and i can go thanks for the gold kind stranger on them saying uh rest in peace he looks sweet you know love the picture and then you can get loads of dms from weirdos asking to see your feet <laughs> i'm just hoping someone's going to have the balls to like take the picture after he's died <laughs> Like, you know, uh, this is my grandfather, you know, fought in World War II, my inspiration, lovely man. Just died. Uh, he, he died 30 minutes ago. Here's a picture. <laughs> you, can, you can take it so soon after, you can still see the, the, the monitor flatlining. Like, you can just see the last pulse. Just a TikTok of his last moments, you know, set to like, you know, I'm a money machine. You know, kind of <laughs> Did you ever see that TikTok where the guy's, the, the kid is like visiting his granddad in like hospital? And the, so the granddad's like on the bed with like the oxygen mask and everything. And the kid's like mm-hmm. singing and like doing it. Like he's holding mm-hmm. the phone with one hand and he's like moving in time with the music and the camera with the other. Right, right. Like, wow. I would, I would just reach over and squeeze my own <laughs> oxygen tube. <laughs> Just unplug yourself. <laughs> I fought. I fought in Korea for this little fuck. Oh yeah, a fun item of news: two Bob Dylan biographers have been absolutely going at each other in the press, which uh, kind of brings to mind the tagline for Alien versus Predator: uh, "Whoever wins, we lose." <laughs> These are uh, two men who have devoted their entire lives to the study of Bob Dylan, uh, basically coming to blows in print. One of them, the author of Bob Dylan Chronicles. 
Uh, probably yes. I don't remember who since I made this note like a month ago. That's sitting on my shelf there. Yeah. Um, do you, how do you feel about Bob Dylan? When I was about twelve, I was I'd, I'd sometimes borrow some of my dad's CDs to listen to them to broaden my musical taste, and he was like, "Here, listen to this. It's the best of Bob Dylan." And I listened to it and I said, well, that was a bit crap, Dad. And he said, yes, I know, but he's important. And that's why I only own the best of. <laughs> if that's his best, I'd hate to hear the worst about Dylan. <laughs> Ooh, um, but yeah, that's why. What are, what are your feelings on, on Bob? Word Bob. What? Like 12 or 13. Um, yeah, he was like just kind of the the uh, germinal like template of, of um, songwriting for me. And I have listened to Bob Dylan as an adult, and I find it the writing is is rarely as good as I remember being. Um, yeah, and of course Bob Dylan musically is not not very sophisticated. Um, I like um, oh goodness, what's that one? Let's uh, know. <laughs> uh, what's it called? Uh, Bob Dylan. The recent, um, like, seven-minute one about the JFK assassination he did. That's pretty funny. <laughs> the JFK assassination he did? He finally confesses. <laughs> he was the second shooter on the grassy knot. <laughs> What's it called? What's it called? Planet Waves. Um, yeah? My last semester of college, I was listening to Planet Waves a lot, and I really liked that. But kind of the um, the the 60s protest year at Bob Dylan, not very good. Yeah. I mean, Masters of War... I remember thinking, damn, it's so true. How, like, <laughs> so true, Bobby. How war is bad. And now you listen to it and it's just completely sophomoric and crude. No, I mean, the thing is, I have not really listened to Bob Dylan any since I discovered Leonard Cohen, who's yeah. doing a very similar thing, but is just completely superior in every way. I absolutely adore Leonard Cohen. I, I don't know. I mean, they're, they're such a such similar artists that I don't know why you would listen to Bob Dylan. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I like Planet Waves. Cool. Okay, so uh, one last item of news. And uh, uh, it's kind of, in, in a way, for this particular item of news, it's good there's been such a long hiatus of Pulch because when it first broke, it was developing at like lightning pace. So uh, listeners may remember two or three episodes ago in, you know, May 2012, the authorized biography of Philip Roth by Blake Bailey was going to come out. Oh, I know about the story. <laughs> and, uh, I know about the story. It came out in April. Uh, to, it was, you know, lauded all over, all over the shop, massive bestseller. And then like two weeks later, uh, some allegations came out against Blake Bailey and then some more allegations came out and then the allegations after the levy broke the allegations just kept coming and they kept getting worse and worse and I had to like just stop reading because it was just it was just getting so bad and so depressing and so constant so yeah pr uh, pretty pretty nasty man <laughs> yeah turns out and uh, so obviously, um, fucking whoever's publishing him in the US, in the US, Viking, I think, depublished him, and uh, he basically, as good as admitted, that he did it by switching to Skyhorse Publishing, uh, who also published Woody Allen and various uh, Trump era admin people and various war criminals. 
I guess that's a niche, you know. I mean, you gotta someone's gotta there's a market for it. You yeah, know, you but could, like you could, you could be the publish we publish uh, reprehensible people. Yeah, yeah, because like he's 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 said like I will strenuously defend my innocence, but you think like if okay, okay, if you are innocent, you'll take this to court, you'll be proven innocent, and you could get published by you know a, a reputable publisher by being like I'm just gonna throw in my lot with you know. Woody Allen, who married his daughter, and literal war criminals. I mean, not that the the allegations are so like there's so many, they're so well documented, they're so like backed up with you know evidence and things. That's just that's undeniable anyway, even without him basically confessing by doing this. Yeah, well, I I think uh, I think on the free marketplace of ideas, uh, we should allow any biography of Philip Roth to stand on its own merits. I don't think we should silence people for uh, sharing the, the, the dangerous knowledge they have of an old Jewish man who writes the same book every, every couple of years. It was, it was a damn good book for most, most of the time, <laughs> but, um, but, 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 I forgot what I was going to say. I had something to say and I completely forgot what it was. He's innocent. That's what you're gonna say. <laughs> no, no, no. We're we're having him on the show next week. He'll defend himself on Coming that platform. back into the public eye. Do you oh think he God. would? Do you think we could get him on here? I mean, I, I bet, bet his, I bet his schedule's free. You think we could get him? <laughs> I bet if we pretended that we genuinely believed him, we could. <laughs> um, we spring it on him. We spring it on him, like, uh, mate, come on. We we don't have any new evidence ourselves, but come on, mate, come on. Did you do it? Uh, I've completely forgotten the point I was going to say. No, it's 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 gone. It's gone. Obviously, obviously, some people are taking this as like, um, oh, this is a terrible assault on free speech, but it's like, not really. <laughs> like, like they were going to read the Philip Roth biography. Yeah. I mean, I do, I do feel good that I did. I I read it start to finish before any of these allegations came out. So I didn't, I don't have to like agonize over whether or not to read it because I've already read it. <laughs> you got in there kind of, kind of before you, uh, before it was a moral choice to make. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's good. And I did, I did pirate it. So he didn't get any money from me. That's good. He can't do more, uh, more assaults or whatever. I don't know what he does. He, uh, he, he, he groomed his, he, so he taught eighth grade, which is like 12 year, 12 year olds, right? And he would groom the students so he could he would have sex with them, but he'd only have sex with them after they turned 18. But he'd spent the entire intervening six years like grooming them for it. And he's also been like credibly accused of rape by different people multiple times. And uh someone who's he used to teach at universities and his he started he harassed one woman so bad that he don't he only stopped after she literally pulled a knife on him. Like the details just get worse and worse the more you look into it. Which joke am I going to make? Am I going to say that's that's a testament to uh, the the usefulness of carrying a knife, or am I going to say uh, someone who who sometimes works with eighth graders they could stand some grooming? Um, <laughs> the hair, the 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 general smell, you know, their shirts yeah. unironed. Yeah, uh, but I mean, but I mean, what he do was he would because he taught like like he didn't teach standard eighth grade English. He taught like the special extra english i don't know what it's fucking called in america in american schooling mm -hmm. but like the the advanced 
yeah. honors or okay. yeah so it was like it was like the students who were especially good at english would have his class on top of regular english class right right and he'd get them all to write diaries about like their, their feelings and things and he'd, and he'd he'd really get like he'd you know he'd manipulate them to get them on site so they'd reveal things to him and then he'd write back so there's loads of pictures of his responses in his handwriting of him writing these astonishingly creepy things to these 12 year olds it's a sick sick man who who gets off on on reading an adolescent's writing yeah like um, it's, it's it's just it's it's stomach churning it's just really really bad I guess I will reveal that I, I actually work with the very old. Um, I I won't say in what capacity, but my my job involves uh, people seventy and up generally, um, in a very funny way. Um, so I'm sure I'll have stories of that as uh, yeah as <laughs> that goes on. Oh, but, did you? Uh, um, you can't accuse me of grooming. I can't <laughs> groom them. Did you did you see that story last year of that um that like 18, 19 year old care home worker who married like an 80 year old guy with Alzheimer's in in the care home? Yeah. <laughs> who thought she was his husband, uh, his wife. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um crazy times. These crop up every so often. There's like like an octogenarian millionaire who is who is gay and who married him some like 20 year old, you know. Uh, a foot taller than him, <laughs> perfect physique, you know, beautiful, great eyebrows, that kind of thing. Yeah. And they divorced like a year later and he took half of it. <laughs> oh my God. You just feel so bad for that guy, I mean, but it's like, you've got did it, you've, you think, did you think? <laughs> you've, you've really got to respect the grift of being like, okay, I've been in this for a year. That's enough. I'm tapping out. <laughs> like think about, you know, Mrs. Bezos. She was in it for, she was in it for a good few years, wasn't she? true yeah so that guy was just like she the richest woman in the world probably yeah one of the richer women in the world i don't know i don't think that's good for women how long one of the richest women in the world (laughs) merely through merely through divorce you know it's like okay you cleaned up the bathroom you made dinner sometimes well no because they'll have had millions of servants to do that won't they exactly but even if you did it's like I mean, what is how housework is like what 20 bucks an hour? Like, come on, like that's not worth half. That's very rarely worth half. Nick, have you been divorced? <laughs> Are you mad about your alimony payments? <laughs> I'm just saying that I could do a housewife's job in like 12 hours a week. Easy. Easy. Cleaning a house, fucking making dinners, I could do that in 12 hours a yeah, week. Yeah, but you've got to that's pay for all that speed, haven't you? That's not a full-time job. That is that is true. You got the the diet pills. The they diet don't pills come cheap. That, that feel so good. Um, okay, so we've got we've got our news items. We've got some misogyny in there. Ultra classic. Um, what have you been reading lately? Reading. Um, have I already talked about the poetry collection uh, "Some Ether" by Nick Flynn? No. I think I was talking to you about it. Uh, Maybe not oh, wait. you. Maybe mentioned it to me, but not on air. So let's let's get some content out of this. All right. Okay. I, um, yeah. So I, I recently, just before bed, I've been reading uh, some Ether by Nick Flynn, um, poetry collection. Really, really, really good. Um, it's kind of um, it's um, so his mother committed suicide, and many of the in that collection are kind of dealing with his thoughts on that, and his thought on his his former addiction, that kind of thing. 
Um, and from the jump, I would be suspicious of it because I really don't like confessional poetry. Um, but he has he has a really he has a kind of poetic distance from it and a really um, a really clear kind of limpid style. I don't know when I when I when I read these, it's it, it feels more like someone who's I guess sorting things in a way that that allows him to kind of learn and grow from from his experiences rather than kind of the the Sylvia Plath sort of thing of just you know opening all of my wounds and, and showing them to everybody. I don't like Sylvia Plath at all. Yeah. Um, yeah. Some ether, fantastic. I mean, it's, it's not it's not more than like 130 pages, I think, and it's poetry, so not a yeah. not a long read, but uh, I think it's great. What else? I read a book about the Soviet in, invasion of Afghanistan. Relevant, <laughs> topical. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's sort of why I picked it because I, I had it for a while, and uh, I have like four books on Afghanistan. I just they they show up in thrift stores. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Are any of them an Afghanistan picture show by our patron saint Bill Volman? I can't find a copy of that. No, I read that on Kindle. Yeah. Um. So that's called uh, Zinky Boys by some Russian person. And uh, it's really interesting because it's sort of, it's part narrative and it's part um, just testimony of um, Russian-Afghan uh, war vets. Yeah. Um, talking about their experiences of it and, and kind of any any honest account of war is really surprising because it's it's much less of a video game and, and much more like having an extremely boring job, the most obnoxious superiors you could imagine yeah. that occasionally breaks out into moments of horrendous violence. Yeah. You, the picture you get of war from reading uh, soldiers' accounts of it is is much different than than you, you'd think from sort of film or, or video games or any kind of those um, more glorifying portrayals of it. When, when veterans get honest about, about their experiences with war, it's, it seems more like just tedious... Uh, just just tedium with with moments of abject horror yeah um, sounds like my marriage hey <laughs> <laughs> sounds like my fucking wife <laughs> oh perfect <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, unless you get a psycho like Ernst Jünger who fought in World War One and every second of it, yeah, um, you you get that. I mean, you know, there and there is, um, you know, uh, some people hated their comrades. Some people, you know, thought they were the closest friends they'd ever make. Um, you know, some people hated Afghanistan. Some people felt kind of more sympathy for the uh, Mujahideen. Uh, they weren't the Taliban at the time. Yeah, the brave Mujahideen fighters of Afghanistan. <laughs> yeah yeah um and uh you know just describe the unspeakable war crimes that they did in in pretty um you know boastful terms which is yeah. stomach churning to read but it's it's a very it's a very good collection i don't know how easy it is to get i just found it secondhand somewhere but if you're ever curious about the soviet invasion of afghanistan you know but why am i finish. so that's my two what have you been reading uh lately yeah books what have you been reading lately uh last thing i finished was uh the new roberto bolaño 
book Cowboy Graves. How was uh, it? Uh, it was fantastic, obviously, because it's Bologna. <laughs> but uh, reading it so soon, so shortly on the heels of Borges, uh, was interesting because it really, it really brought brought into depth just how much he he learned from Borges, really, in the way of you know mentioning lots of real writers and bringing them in as characters sometimes, and the sort of uh, this more to do with the sort of the sort of pampas gaucho cowboy imagery of the, the sort of violence un- underneath South American society. But yeah, it was you know it, it was more of the same of Bolaño which is always appreciated. I've heard there's a bunch uh, in the pipe, right? There's a, there's a bunch of Bologna that's going to really? be translated in the near future, isn't there? That they I, found some, but that's kind of only in Spanish, right? I thought, I thought this was it. I thought this was that, but I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if they found some more because they are really just scraping through his hard drive and his, and his files to, to turn out everything, but it's all good. Like it, it's all great. So we get to like, you know, his, his, I don't know his Counter Strike, you know, <laughs> profile or whatever. Like his his save file in Skyrim. Are we going to get to see that? His Usenet posts. What does what does Roberto Bolaño have on his hard drive? <laughs> oh, I read Paris Spleen by Baudelaire. 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 Um, how was it? That was great. It was good stuff. Uh, it's just you know. Baudelaire, it's just good. It's just f- 50 little slices of horrible things happening in Paris. Yeah, he's not a not a uh, little fellow, is he? No, <laughs> that's why we love him. But yeah, at the moment, I'm I'm reading. A, I started a history of Japan y- yesterday. Ooh. It's a, just like a Dutch, like a 300 page overview of the basics of. Japanese history, which is pretty interesting so far. I'm not very far in, but it's, you know, it's quite interesting. I I know very little about East Asia. It's kind of a gap in my education. That's uh, that's kind of what I'm hoping to rectify by reading this. And I read a, a history of China recently as well. What did you read? Uh, a history of China by John Key. <laughs> okay, I have um, uh, Baby Finland, whom some might know, recommended I read. Uh, China and After by Mar- and uh, so I bought a copy. Haven't read it, so yeah. Sorry, baby Finland. I mean, I did. I showed you the the the, the names of the Chinese bandits in there, didn't I? Yes, you did. Yeah. <laughs> let me uh, let, let me get those up for the dedication of the listener because these these Chinese these Chinese bandits were not fucking around when it came to their bandit names. Now imagine if you were you know a Chinese peasant in the year 800 or so and you know you're going about your chinese peasant business farming rice and things uh, and then you encounter bandits called uh, big eyes lee zuo of the 80 foot mustache poison you and oxhorn zhang you would shit your pants <laughs> you have to admire poison you for his uh, his straightforwardly <laughs> threatening name, that's my God! Don't you know who that is? That's Poison You. What does he do? He poisons you. Uh, I think you said that's a, that's a man whose dinner invitations you yes. decline. <laughs> poison You wants to wants me to come round for dinner. Hmm. <laughs> I'll say I have other plans. <laughs> 
Oh, just, just a classic Ed Sullivan type joke there. <laughs> <laughs> Poison use on first. <laughs> um, I think that's it, isn't it? That's our regular segments. That's that's the regular segment. We did the book. We did the news. We did the what have you been reading lately? We did uh, dr- drunken antics. What we've been up to. I think that's a that's a complete episode of Pulch, everyone. Holy first, shit! <laughs> first one in a long time. I'm uh, I'm I'm pleased. I, I had a lot of fun doing this. I, I bet you were I surprised really, to see this in your podcast feeds, weren't you? I bet you were. I bet you. I bet you clicked. I bet you downloaded. I bet you pulled over your car and put it on. Uh, you liked um, and subscribed and shared on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Reddit, posts on Reddit. So Post us no one... on Reddit underneath a picture of your dead granddad. <laughs> this is my granddad. I loved him. He, his dying wish was just to spread the word of Pulch, something along those lines. A little TikTok video where you start, you're playing the episode as your grandfather flatlines. You're miming along to us discussing Pulch <laughs> and uh, me mocking Nick, dancing like literally around, mispronouncing words. Dancing around in your like extremely heavy blush or whatever you kids wear now. Kids will wear that now, you know? Kids want to look like they've been, like, uh, battered about the cheeks. I don't know. I, I spend as little time looking at kids as I can, so I don't know. That's someone who doesn't want grooming allegations. <laughs> Children, I avoid them. <laughs> I can't even remember the last time I was within 100 feet of children. <laughs> I'm not legally allowed. Um, I, sw- I swear I've been obeying the order, Judge. I swear. Normally we end the episode by haranguing and threatening you to uh, do various things to promote the show, but I, I don't feel we've earned it having not released an episode in uh, uh, the better part of a year. So Yeah, that's understandable, frankly. I, I'm good for next week. I'm also good for next week. We're going to do Fixiones Part 2. Maybe we'll toss something else in the mix to uh, pad out the runtime. I don't know. Yeah. We'll figure something out. But uh, You know how we like to keep it crazy here at Pulch? Thanks for listening, everyone. Hasta luego. Keep watching the skies. Five, I see them and count. They line up like a row of heads, and I fall into their depths of water, water everywhere. Oh, let me fall into you. Let me sleep long and quiet God watches all sparrows fall Both fall, thanks The cat is dead Thank you, a worthwhile thing to pray Loud and often so sleepy, silent. That small bubble, my dream, burst last night. It was bloodful, so full that when it split, I was blinded. Feelings 
wondrous kind Our love with kittens ever bind Those with feelings wondrous kind Our love with kittens ever bind Those with feelings wondrous kind Our love with kittens ever bind with feelings wondrous kind our love with kittens ever bind those with feelings wondrous kind our love with kittens ever bind